Ezekiel chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 28. Ezekiel 1 verses 4 through 28. Ezekiel says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze under their wings. And their four sides they had human, on their four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces um, and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of four of them. And as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the fourth had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. They went, when they went, they went in any of four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads and under the expanse above their and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another and each creature had two wings covering its body and when they went I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters like the sound of the almighty a sound of tumult like the sound of an army when they stood still they let down their wings and there came a voice from the from above the expanse over their heads when they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was a brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, we're going to wrap up chapter one tonight because I want to get into the beginning of chapter two for where we really need to go for this evening. But there's a few more things here in chapter one that I just really want to take some time to bring out. And if you don't know this already, let me remind you, my desire is to show you how scripture interprets scripture. And the best way to know what Scripture is saying is to allow the Scripture speak for itself. And if you look through the New Testament, whenever the New Testament writers were explaining things and truths from God, they would use the Old Testament to explain the truth that they were teaching. And I want you to be those kind of people that only use Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
there's a lot of people today that will use some scripture and then some human reasoning. I want you to avoid all human reasoning because human reasoning will get you in trouble. There's a way that seems right unto man, correct? <laughs> and in the end thereof is death. Use the whole of scripture. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. So for the sake of time and for the sake of you not getting too frustrated with me, you might want to write some of these down because you may or may not be able to keep up. All right, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we see that the cherubim are traveling under the throne of God, and we're going to deal with more of that later, and between them and at their feet are coals of fire. Ezekiel chapter 1, look at verses 13 and 14 again. It says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So here we see that he sees these four living creatures. And as you know, their wings touch each other. And wherever they go, the, the wheels go with them. And we'll get into that a little bit later too. But among their feet were coals of fire with lightning and fire sparkling all the time amidst, in the midst of it. Go to chapter 10 of Ezekiel. You'll see a further description of this. And you'll see that it's used as a part of God's judgment as well. In Ezekiel chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 8. Ezekiel says, Then I looked, and behold, on the, above, sorry, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in. And a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. And when He commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim. And he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. So here we see that he's told to take this, these coals of fire and do what? You see it back in, in, in verse uh, 2. Scatter them over the city. And as we'll get to that, this is when the judgment of God comes on the nation of Israel. The glory of the Lord will leave the temple and the judgment falls on the city of Jerusalem. All right. Go to Ezekiel 28, though. Look at verses 11 through 14. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and per perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, and emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You see it? So we see now that there are these stones of fire that are at the feet of the cherubim. They are underneath the throne of God. Actually, there's them and then the expanse and then the throne of God. And we see them moving in this way. This will be important for later on in our study. Now, as we touched on last week, they also have wheels within wheels at their feet. These whirling wheels, as Ezekiel 10 tells us what they are, 
allow them to move in any direction without turning. And so the best way I can describe this wheel within a wheel to you is to have you imagine a wheel that's like a hula hoop in this direction, and then imagine another one in the opposite direction within it. You understand what I'm saying? And that will be able to roll in any direction. And I believe that's what the picture is. There's a lot of drawings you'll find online of people's pictures of what they might look like. Those are all speculation, and my speculation is speculation as well. But from my understanding of the scriptures and how it's worded, imagine a wheel going this way and another one going this way. It can roll that way or that way, and I believe that's what the picture is here. So it's one wheel, but it has two parts, a wheel within a wheel. There's one wheel for each one, but it's kind of like, like a gyroscope. Very good. And it's kind of imagine like a ball of some sort that isn't completely enclosed. I actually thought about taking a wiffle ball and cutting out parts to bring one and show you roughly, you know, just imagine a wiffle ball with pieces of orange slice cut out of it four times. You understand what I'm saying? That'll give you a picture. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we already read it. It talked about that. But look at Ezekiel 10, verses 9 through 13, and then Ezekiel 10, verses 16 through 19, and be reminded of something we looked at last week. Ezekiel 10, verses 9 through 13. It says, And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. And the wheels that the four of them had, as for the wheels they were called in my hearing, the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. And then we go on and see that the description of the cherubim, which we saw last week. So again, we see now that these cherubim have wheels, which are wheels within wheels, kind of like balls, if you will, or like gyroscope is a good way to describe it. There's coals of fire amongst their feet that we're going to get into later on that God uses for judgment. Above them is an expanse that is just clear as crystal. And then above that was a throne. Let's take a look at that. And above these cherubim, the um, and the fire amongst their feet, there was a throne. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and look at verses 22 through 28. I'm moving quickly through this because of the fact that I want to get to chapter 2 tonight. And we've looked at this section of Scripture for two weeks in a row now, so I'm not going to stay on it too, too much longer. Plus, to be honest with you, I can't tell you any more than we're just getting right here. We, we don't know anymore. To go any further would be to spend our time wasting uh, on speculation. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 22 through 28. Look at what it says. It says, Over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they looked down their wings. And you keep reading. And above their, the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was a brightness around him, like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. 
so was the appearance of the brightness all around, and so, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And we're going to get to a little later tonight. When he saw it, he fell on his face. Go to Revelation, I'm sorry, Ezekiel real quick, then we'll go to Revelation. Ezekiel 10, just one verse, one verse, verse 1. We already read this, but I want to remind you of it. Ezekiel 10, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. So here again, we see in chapter 1 and chapter 10 that there was this throne above the expanse, above the cherubim. But let's jump to Revelation chapter 4, because if you remember from our Revelation study, John something, saw something very, very similar. In Revelation chapter 4, let's jump to verse 1 and verses 1 through 11. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third living creature the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the Lord, or before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, I don't know how many of you caught this, but as much as there's similarities between what John sees in Revelation 4 and what Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 1 and 10, there are some discrepancies, aren't there? So we're going to take some time now to look at some of these discrepancies. That's what we're going to take a look at. The question was, by the way, for those who didn't hear, are they discrepancies or additional information? Well, let's take a look. John's revelation account is almost exactly the same as what Ezekiel saw, but there's some slight differences. John saw the same rainbow around the throne that Ezekiel saw. Go back to Revelation 4, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Kernigan, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So here we see John sees a rainbow around the throne. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Look at verses 26 through 28. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness throne was likeness of a human appearance. And his, uh, of his waist I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward from what they have the appearance of his waist I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him, and this is how John describes it, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So is the appearance of the brightness all around. 
So John, Ezekiel sees it and he says, it kind of reminds me of that rainbow that you see. It, it had the colors of a rainbow, but it had a, a brightness to it and a glory to it. Re John sees the same thing in Revelation 4 and he says there was a rainbow around the throne that looked like an emerald. Now, John, though, sees 24 thrones around the throne. We don't see in Ezekiel's account 24 thrones. Now, be careful. I have a speculation as to why John sees 24 thrones around the throne, and I'm going to show you from Scripture why that is. I'll be honest with you, folks. Whenever I speculate, I'm going to tell you it's speculation, but I'm also going to tell you why I'm speculating from Scripture. I'll never speculate unless I think I have scriptural reason to speculate. But at the same time, if I don't believe I have enough scriptural backing to say this is how and this is why, I'll let you know that. We don't have enough scriptural evidence to show why. Because the reason for why John is seeing the throne of God and for the reason why Ezekiel is seeing the throne of God is slightly different for God's purposes. And as you know, God sometimes, Jesus appears as a lamb, does he not? And then again, we see in Revelation, he appears as a lion. So which is he? The answer is yes. You know, the answer is yes. And in the same way, he'll reveal parts of himself to us for what his purposes are. And he lets us see some. That's why when Moses said, I want to see your glory, God says, I'll tell you what, I'll show you what you can handle. In the same way, when God reveals himself, he doesn't reveal all of himself to all of us. And actually, we couldn't handle it if, if he did. And so in Ezekiel's account, we kept be real careful of saying, well, this is what it was in Ezekiel, and this is what it was in Revelation, and therefore X means Y, and you've got to be careful with that. But I have a reason why I believe John sees 24 thrones around the throne and Ezekiel doesn't. Here's my reason. I believe without question, as you remember from our Revelation study, I believe without question the 24 elders are representative of the church, ruling with Jesus on his throne. You say, well, what are you talking about? Go back to Revelation chapter 3. And look at verse 21. Remember, these are the messages to the churches. Revelation 3, 21, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reason why I think John sees 24 thrones around the throne and Ezekiel didn't is possibly because at the time of Ezekiel's vision, the church hasn't been born yet. There are no 24 thrones around the throne. And I personally don't think that the 24 thrones are going to be exhibited until the time after the time of the rapture. The Bible is very clear that Jesus said to the church, I'm going to let you sit on thrones with me. I'm going to give you white garments. I'm going to give you golden crowns. All the promises to the churches, if you remember back in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And as you remember from our study in Revelation in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, there were so many priests that they had to break them down into 24 divisions. And each division represented the rest of the priests. And we see in chapter 25 of 1 Chronicles that there were so many worship leaders and song leaders in, the, in, in Israel that they had to break them into 24 divisions. And I believe the 24 thrones are representative of the whole church. And like we touched on back way back in our study in Revelation, way, way back, you remember how we talked about the possibility is that each of us might have a turn on one of those thrones as we sit and rule and reign with Jesus. I think the reason why John sees 24 thrones and Ezekiel doesn't is because in Ezekiel's day, there was no church yet. But by John's day, when he's shown what's going to take place after the rapture, that's what's going to take place after this, after the church age, at that point, the church is in heaven with Jesus and we're ruling and reigning with him. And that's why he sees the difference. Again, speculation, but I think there's plenty enough scriptural proof to, to tell you about that. But did anybody else notice, though, that in John's vision, everything seemed to be horizontal? 
where in Ezekiel's vision, everything seemed to be a little more vertical. Did anybody catch that? See, Ezekiel's talking about how under the expanse and under the expanse and above the, you see what I'm saying? But John sees them as around and in front. And so it's almost like he sees boom, 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 boom this way, where Ezekiel sees it boom, 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 boom this way. And so there's a difference between how John sees them horizontal, Ezekiel sees them vertical. But John also says the four living creatures have six wings, when Ezekiel says that the, they clearly states they have how many? Four. Well, how do we deal with this? Well, again, let's let Scripture deal with it, and let's be biblical in our answer. All right? So I'm going to show you Scripture, and then we're going to be biblical in our answer. All right? Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm, a, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So here we see that Isaiah's taken by God in vision to the throne of God. And he sees God on his throne. And above the throne, when we had never seen anything prior above the throne, Isaiah sees seraphim with six wings. So, does John see seraphim in Revelation 4? Remember, we're going to let Scripture, we're going to let Scripture explain for us. What John sees are the four living creatures. And we see from Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, if you remember early in our study, the full, he calls them the four living creatures. And these are the cherubim that I saw. So the four living creatures aren't seraphim, they're cherubim. But for some reason, Ezekiel sees them with two wings and John sees them with four. Seraphim have six wings and they're above the throne of God. And yes, the seraphim in, in, in Isaiah cry out, holy, holy, holy. But then they go on and say the whole earth is full of his glory. Back in Revelation 4, the, the four living creatures cry out, holy, holy, holy. But what do they say after that? Who was and is and is to come. So they, they, yes, they do say holy, holy, holy like the seraphim do, but they're not saying the exact same thing. Are you ready for the biblical answer? We don't know. We don't know. And I'm going to go somewhere with this. I'm not just going to say we don't know and then say, hey, deal with it because I'm your mom. You know, that, it's not going to give you one of those kind of answers. I'm going to show you biblically why it's okay to say we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. To go any further, and trust me, I've spent hours digging and looking. There's no more evidence anywhere in Scripture as to whether or not the seraphim or the cherubim or how many wings and all this stuff. I've showed you what's there. But also at the same time, listen to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Go to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I must go on boasting, 
though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in, in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, let me clarify that for you because you're about to see him call it again by the term paradise. In the Jewish mindset, there were three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly. And then the second heaven is where the stars are and the planets. They knew that the birds couldn't get there, but there was something beyond. And the third heaven was beyond that where you can't see. And that's in their mind where God dwelt. So there's the heavens where the birds fly, the heavens where the stars are. And beyond that is what they call the third heaven where God exists. Paul says, I know a man 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. <laughs> Paul just says, it was an experience that was real. I had a body, but I don't know if it was my body. I don't know if it was a vision. I, I can't tell you if, it, if I was there in my body or if it was a different body. But then he goes on and says this, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Do you see what Paul says here? He says, I was taken into the paradise where God is. I was taken to the third heaven and I was shown things that I can't talk about. By the way, does anyone remember what Jesus told his disciples, Peter, James and John, after they saw him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration? You can't tell anybody what you saw until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. I'll be honest with you, folks. I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but I'm always a little leery of people that have these experiences where they saw heaven and they want to tell everybody what they saw. Especially when it doesn't match up with Scripture, and especially when Paul was taken there, and we know it, and Paul wasn't allowed to talk about what he saw. Neither was Daniel. Go to Romans chapter 8. The same Paul wrote this, though, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me read that to you again. Paul says, knowing he's seen the glory to be revealed. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Has God given us glimpses of what's on the other side? Has God shown us that there is another world, that there is a real world, the spiritual world, and this physical realm is temporary and going away? Yes, He has. Has He given us enough to know that it's real? Yes. But has He given us a full... Paul even spent a whole chapter in 15, 1 Corinthians 15 on what our new bodies are going to be like. And he says, I can tell you this much, it ain't going to be like the one you got. Amen. And they're going to differ in glory for one from another. But to be honest with you, can't tell you. There's a lot that we don't know. And it's okay when we come to situations like this where John sees the same thing, it appears, that Ezekiel saw, yet they got six wings in John, in John's account in Revelation, and they got four wings in Ezekiel's account. And too many people who are too smart for their own britches and show their own stupidity waste too much time arguing in the internet chat rooms over minutiae that God hasn't revealed. Let me keep you from this error. Why do they have six wings here and four here? We don't know. I'm sure there's a good reason. But for right now, we don't know. And it's okay. Let me give you one more scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. Quoting from Isaiah 64, and we're about to go to Isaiah 64 in just a second, so I'll give you a little heads up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, As it is written, What no one has seen, nor I ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's pretty cool. Now he goes on and says he has revealed it to us through his spirit, and he gives us glimpses, and he goes on to something else and, and all. But what I really did was, whenever I see as it is written, I want to go find out where it was written. Because I want to see the context. I love how the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because as you know, everything that's written in our book was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This wasn't written by man. They were moved by the Spirit to write every word. And so whenever I see someone like Paul here writing, and under the inspiration of the Spirit quoting from the Old Testament, I want to go back and see what was he quoting from? What's the context? How is he taking it from that context into this context? And I was blown away by Isaiah 64. Go to Isaiah 64. And I pray that God would put within us this attitude, this humility, yet a belief in the coming kingdom. Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah 64. Oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. Anybody, anybody else feel that way? Before the election. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. By the way, has anybody caught it yet? This is a passage that Paul quotes from quite a bit. I mean, we see this in Romans chapter 8. We see this in Romans chapter 3. We see this in many places. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Folks, I'll be honest with you. I believe without question that not only is there prophecy in this that was quoted by Paul in many places, I believe that this is what the Jews are going to be crying out as they hide in the wilderness. The second part of this where they say, you were right. Are you going to leave it that way? Are you going to leave it that way? Folks, listen to the humility. 
God, you're the one that's going to have to write things. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And then and the mountains shake and the earth give way. And, and in the past, you did things that we didn't even look for. And the mountains shook at that time. And we could go on to the story of the scriptures of all those. And then he goes on and just talks about the fact that God has a lot in store for those who wait on him. More than you ever could imagine. So if he's chosen not to reveal why the seraphim have six and the cherubim have four, but then again, the cherubim have six here. And I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I don't have to know. If it's here, I'm digging. I don't see it. And it's okay to say, like Paul, there are some things that we won't know till we get there. He's given me enough to know, and he wants me to live by faith and not by sight. And he doesn't want me to argue with my brothers over minutia. You'd be amazed how many people want to come up and argue with me after places I've spoke around this country over who I think the replacement for Judas was. Oh, I have an opinion. Mine is scriptural, I think. But I'm not going to argue with you over it. I was sitting in a restaurant just recently in this area with a pastor, actually a Sunday school teacher. And we were talking scripture. And this young guy comes by and he goes, are you a Christian? I go, yeah. He goes, are you a preacher? I said, yeah. He goes, I thought so. I heard you say, ah, millennial. <laughs> I said, yes, I did use the term ah, millennial, but I'm against it. He said, oh, I'd love to argue with you on that. I'd win. I told him, I said, the fact that you see it as a matter of winning and losing shows me that I don't want to talk to you about it. It's not an issue of winning and losing. And he left. And I went back to my discussion of prophecy with this Sunday school teacher. But folks, when I was younger, I used to want to win. As you probably know, God's blessed me with a good memory and a lot of scriptures. It didn't matter who I would argue with. I thought I had more bullets in my gun than you have in yours. <laughs> And then I started to realize that the scripture in 2 Timothy 2.24 says the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Must gently instruct in the hopes that God will bring them to an understanding. And I started to realize that all those years that I thought I was righteous in arguing with people after, pre after sermons or whatever over scripture. And trying to win the argument and our voices getting higher and higher. All it was was my flesh on display. As I get old, because I'm 51 now, I'm really old. And uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm starting to get to that point where I realize I don't know, and that is okay. Now, as we move into chapter 2, please don't miss rea the reaction of Ezekiel to seeing God in his glory. Look at the end of chapter 1. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. When he saw what we're wanting to argue about. Isn't that amazing? We're wanting to argue about what he saw. Yet the one who saw it just fell on his face in humility and fear. And Isaiah 6, 5, what was Isaiah's reaction when he saw the glory of the Lord on his throne? What did he say? Woe is me. I'm dead. <laughs> now that I'm in the presence of the Holy One, I see how unholy I am. Daniel writes as he was confessing his sins and the sins of his people Israel. And we say, Daniel, you don't got any sins to confess. Oh, we don't understand our sinfulness. 
when we think like that. In Revelation chapter 1, we're not going to take the time to turn there because of the things I want to cover in closing tonight. But in, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, you remember John is on the Isle of Patmos. And as he was there praying and in the spirit that day, he heard the voice of one behind him and he turned and he looked and he saw Jesus. But he saw Jesus in his glory and he described him. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. This wasn't a false humility of, oh, I'm going to bow before you. This was, he passed out. Kind of like the guards at the tomb. So fearful, so awesome, the glory and the power of God and the holiness of God, he just fell. Well, go to Acts chapter 9. As you're turning to Acts chapter 9, let me remind you about who we're going to be reading about. His name at the time is Saul, and he's a very proud individual. And he's sure he's right, and all these Christians are wrong. And he's been working his way up the ladder, and he's got a lot to brag about in his Judaism. And as he's on his way to have more Christians put into prison and put to death, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murderers against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Yes, sir. Well, I always thought it was neat how he said, Who are you, Lord? Well, I, at, the, at that point, he there's somebody greater than himself, that's for sure. Yes. Oh, don't miss the fact, though, also that he was going after Christians and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Folks, do you ever sometimes when we see the ISIS and different groups like that beheading Christians and dressing them in orange and then cutting their heads off? You ever start to say, well, where's God? Oh, don't think for a second that God doesn't know because Jesus takes it personally whenever his bride is killed. The family of God, his brothers and sisters are put to death. Oh, it may not look like he's not there, but he's there. Every one of them. You ever notice the calm that they have? It's like a supernatural calm, isn't it? Yeah, because he'll be with us in whatever it is we go through. He promises that. But the reaction all the time, I could go on and on. There's more, but I'm not going to do it. The reaction when people see the holiness of God and they see these visions that we are wanting to argue over, when they see them, their reaction is not, well, how come there's six wings here and over here there's only four? <laughs> their reaction is they just fall on their face. Oh, by the way, they're not falling over backwards. They're falling this way. Yes, because of Jesus, we need not fear God's wrath. And we can call him Abba, which means Daddy, because we're now his children. But have we lost our reverence for his holiness? Do we tend to think that he's like us too often? Do we need to be reminded of his glory and his power and his holiness? 
Do we have the same hatred of our sin that He does? It will do us good to be reminded of these visions of God and to have our thoughts and actions realigned with His holiness. When I saw this, I fell. I fell. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And He, God, said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Folks, this is as far as we can go tonight, because there is some deep theology here that I have to take some time to clarify because of confusion that is happening in the Christian world today, because of debates that are happening amongst Christians over this issue that we're about to get into. I have to show you from Scripture tonight the something that here that you might not have noticed, or some of you might have caught it. It would be wrong to go any further without looking fully at these two verses. Here we see God command Ezekiel to stand up. But then Ezekiel says that it was God's Spirit who empowered him and brought him to his feet. Here again we see that two aspects of the work of God displayed in these verses. God commands Ezekiel to stand up. He says, stand up. But then God makes Ezekiel stand up. Please don't run to either side of the predestination free will debate. Avoid these arguments. Don't run to one side or the other, because I'm going to show you from Scripture tonight in the time that we have left, both sides are true. Man, let me clarify, I don't like the term free will, because man doesn't have free will. Free will means you're free to choose whatever you want. Well, I didn't choose whether or not I was a man or a woman, even though some people say they can do that. That, that, I, I, that was chosen by God. I don't get to choose my gift when it comes to the body of Christ. That's chosen by God. There's a lot of things that I don't have the ability to say yes or no. So I don't have free will to choose whatever I want. Yet, the Bible does teach that I have the ability to say yes or no to his offer of salvation. And if anybody says you don't have that opportunity, that you have no choice, it's not scriptural. We're going to deal with all that tonight. Yet at the same time, the Bible also says that if I respond to God's offer of salvation, I didn't do it. He did it. Well, Jim, how can they be both? You ready for my Bible answer? We don't know. And it's okay. There are too many scriptures, way too many scriptures, that you, God says, if. And if there was no if, he would never say if. The fact that he says if means there's a choice. Yet at the same time, the Bible then says anything that we do has been done by him. God tells Ezekiel, stand up. Ezekiel says, and before I even had a chance to, his spirit came into me and stood me up. Folks, I can actually remember my salvation experience. And as an eight-year-old boy in a little town in Milton, New Hampshire, and actually I had the privilege this summer when I was up in New Hampshire to take my kids, and I actually went into the high school, got permission to go back into my old high school, and uh, we went into the gymnasium where I could show them where I played basketball back then. But actually, I was more excited to tell the kids that it wasn't just here that I played basketball. Here's where I got saved. You see, in that little town in New Hampshire, they had an evangelist come into the town, and he had the people all come to the high school gymnasium. It was one of those old school gymnasiums that have a stage on one end. Do you remember those kind? 
And the chairs were all set up in folding chairs on the floor facing the stage. And at the invitation time, the Spirit of God opened my eyes to understand that even though I was in a Christian home, and even though I knew the Bible and knew the Bible stories, and my dad was a preacher and my mom was the pianist, and even though I thought I understood, he showed me at eight years old that even though I believed all these things, I had to personally do something. Just believing all that wasn't enough. And I knew at that moment that I needed to personally act on what he had been telling me. And as I began to move, something happened, folks, where I literally felt someone pick me up and shove me down that aisle. And there was nobody there. But I didn't get up out of that chair. Oh, I I did. But the moment I started to do it, he did it. He did it. And I can look you in the eye and tell you, that's when I got saved. Did I do it? Well, let me put it this way. Did I have a choice? Yes. Did I do it? No, I didn't do it. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Let me show you this. In, it's all throughout the scriptures, this truth here. Philippians chapter 2. Oh, and by the way, for anybody that tries to argue with you using human reasoning that we're dead in our sins and a dead person on a slab can't get up and God has to do it all for them. You've heard those arguments. Just take them to Revelation chapter two and three, where God says to the church in Thyatira, I, you, have, you're, you think you're alive, but you're dead. And he says, repent. Wake up. So if God's telling a dead person to wake up, I think it's possible. So don't use human reasoning. Only use scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Look what he says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who's been commanded to do the work here? We have been. Look at verse 13. For it's God who works in you both to will, that means give you the desire, and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Yes. You're commanded to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who actually works in you to give you the desire and to do it. John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. Again, we're going to let Scripture speak. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You see it? No one comes unless the Father draws them. Are they all drawn? According to here, it says in the prophets, they're all going to be taught by God, whoever listens, whoever hears and listens comes to me. Go ahead. Is it possible that in Acts 7, when Stephen's preaching, that points to our portion where we stop resisting? Yes, and you're jumping ahead of me, you rascal, but yes, no, that's excellent, excellent. But no, 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 no. Listen to what James says. And I'm not sure I even put this in my notes, so I'm not running. Yeah, I did. We're going to go there. We got time. Better keep moving. I'm going to give you a little tip. James says, receive the implanted word. Remember how the seed, the soil, 
the parable of the soils, the seed was scattered, and it went into the soil. And some sprung up, but it wasn't real salvation. The Bible says, receive the implanted word. The word's gone out into all the earth, folks. Everyone hears. Everyone has had the word planted. Not everybody receives it. John 6, 44, you've heard me say this before. Your kids have heard you, but that doesn't mean they listen, correct? Hearing and listening are two different things. Everybody hears, but no one can come unless God does his work first. Romans 10, verses 8 through 21. A very familiar passage that people love to quote, trying to argue on the free will side. Listen to Romans 10, verses 8 through 21. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now hang on for a second. We've been hearing this verse preached to us like, well, how can they hear unless someone tells them? In the context, Paul is actually saying all this stuff that I've been talking to you about through this whole book. They've already heard. In other words, what he's saying is, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? In other words, God would never expect you to believe something he hadn't already told you. And then he says, but they haven't all obeyed the gospel. In other words, they have all heard. They haven't all obeyed. And then he goes on and says this in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see it? Everybody hears. His word gone out, has gone out into all the earth. It continues to go out into all the earth. We're to be faithful to go, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 3 of Ezekiel. If given the role of the watchman on the watchtower, if we don't warn them, judgment's still going to come to them. But we're going to be held accountable if we don't share with the ones that God's told us to share with. But yet, don't think for a second that if you don't tell them, they don't hear. Oh, they hear. His word's gone out into all the earth. Keep moving. Go to Acts chapter 13. Look at verses 42 through 48. Now Paul and his companions, sorry, jump to verse 42. As they went out, chapter 13 of Acts 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and divine converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, the fact that these people are curious and wanting to know more about Jesus there in the synagogue, what is that evidence to us? 
that God's begun his work because no one responds unless God begins to draw them. But Paul says to them, continue in the grace of God. You have a responsibility now. God's drawing you. Continue in the grace of God. But keep reading. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what, um, what was spoken by Paul in reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has so commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So which is it? Continue in the grace of God. God's drawing you. You got to stay in it. Or if everyone that was appointed believed. Yes. What is our response then? What is our action? And that's what you just said, Jeff. If God is continually drawing, if God is continually spreading out his offer, we have to stop resisting it. We have the ability to say no or yes. We grieve the spirit when we resist the spirit. The word confess simply means to agree with God or to say the same thing as God. We've been taught that confessing was you starting the conversation. Like, John, I really need to confess something to you. But if it's something you've never heard, I'm not confessing. I'm just telling you stuff on myself. The word confess in the Greek is homologeo, to say the same thing or to agree. In other words, if I agree with Thomas, who spoke first? Thomas. If I confess that what Thomas says is right, I am in response to Thomas and I agree with Thomas, and I say, you are right, Thomas. God is through His Spirit and through His Word and through creation and through believers getting this message to the whole world of their lostness and their need of a Savior. When the world confesses their sin, they're just simply saying, God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I agree with you that I need what you have for my righteousness. I stop resisting. When we walk as Christians with the Spirit indwelling us and we cause Him to grieve, don't we? Sometimes the Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit, which we were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. He never leaves us. He's continually pursuing us. He lives within us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's forever lovingly saying, come on, come on, come on. Let me have control. Let me have control. And when we confess, we say, you're right. Remember when Jesus tried to wash Peter's feet? He wasn't teaching on service like we've been told. Because Jesus said, Peter, you don't know what I'm doing right now. Later you will. If Jesus was teaching about service, Peter knew what he was doing. That's why Peter said, I'm not gonna let you serve me. He says, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. Jesus was teaching about sanctification. As you go on later on, he says, if you don't let me wash, you have no part. Of course, Peter being Peter says, give me the whole bath. I'll take the wash, the wax, the rinse, everything. <laughs> Jesus says, look, you don't need a bath. You're already clean. You need your feet washed. That's sanctification. That's that daily process. We've been made clean. I've already had the bath. But I still sin and you still sin. When did Peter confess that Jesus was right? That he needed that sanctification? When he stopped pushing Jesus away. 
and he received the implanted word. Do you see it? James chapter 1. I want you to see it. I've been quoting it to you. I want you to see it. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. James chapter 1. I'm going to back up to verse 21, and then we'll go to chapter 20, verse 22. James 1, verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he lo looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, some translation says continues to do so, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Do you see it? You have a responsibility. So we're to surrender first to the truth that only he can do what he's asked us to do. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I'm going to ask you this question. What is our response? Then what is our action? If it is he who does it, surrender first to the truth that only he can do what he's asked you to do. That's your first step. Acknowledge, apart from you, I can't do this. So whatever it is you're asking of me, you've got to do it. Then we are to receive by faith what God is wanting to give you and do through you. What I just read there. Receive the implanted word. In other words, God's word's gone out. The, the whole world is saying there's no God and all. They know he's there. The Bible says everyone's without excuse. They, it's, it's been clearly seen. They know. They've just decided to, blah, 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 you know, and ignore it. They know. The word has gone out into all the earth. You got family members that don't know the Lord? Stop praying that someone will tell them. There's nothing wrong with praying that prayer. But why don't you start believing that he's already told them and pray that they'll stop resisting the drawing of God. Thank God he continues to send more people and more people and more people and puts people in our path. But pray that they, like the prodigal son, come to their senses. Become broken to the point that they're ready to surrender. In Colossians chapter 1. Look at two more passages and we'll close with this for tonight. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I love this. Paul understood the, the balance of the two. Paul says in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. How many of us over the years were raised in churches that taught you to work hard, but were never taught how to do it with his energy? Folks, how many times have we heard the term burnout? Will the Holy Spirit ever run out? Has any promised rivers of living water? That if you're doing whatever it is he's asked you to do and you learn, learn to let him do it through you, he'll empower you and give you the grace. Folks, if you could even see what my schedule's been like the last few weeks or a few days and what it's going to be, especially be praying for me. But God's grace will be because it's going to have to be by God's grace. And I thought of that tonight as I was beginning to speak and my voice started to get a little bit harsh. 
because I am going to be flying. Well, I'm preaching again tomorrow, as you know. And then Thursday, I fly to Michigan and I'm going to be doing meetings and speaking where I'm going to be teaching the whole Bible study that we did in Revelation chapter 4 through 22 in chronological order from Friday night, 7 to 9, Saturday, 9 to 4 with a lunch break and finishing Sunday morning at 1030. I need his grace. Oh, I've got a lot of work that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be toiling. I'm going to be struggling, but I'm going to be doing it in the power of God and resting in him as I do it. Paul says, I toil, I work, but it's not me. How often do we say, I've been working hard. <laughs> it's your problem. <laughs> That's your problem. That's not what God promised. He promised an easy yoke and a light burden. Last one, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll get into this more when we come back. But folks, if you are burnt out doing what it is you do for the Lord, if you are upset because nobody's helping me, and I'm having to do this all myself, you are one, at best, doing it in your own strength, or two, doing something God never intended you to do, because He's not gifted you to do it. Find what it is that you've been wired and gifted by God to do. Do only that and do it by His grace and you'll find Christianity a whole lot of fun. We'll see you next week because I will be back. I'll be back next Tuesday. We'll see you then.